Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. We are go for launch. Okay, all flight controllers, let's play it cool. All engines are started. That looks really good. So we'd like it to uh, stir up your cryo tank. Oh, wow, it's going up so slowly. Station, this is Houston. Are you ready for the event? Yes, I'm all set, yeah. Welcome to another edition of the award-winning Space Boffins podcast in partnership with The Naked Scientists. I'm Richard Hollingham and this is Sue Nelson. This time we talk to the astronaut helping to design NASA's new space capsule and we'll be hearing about the telescope being built to track killer asteroids. And in our continuing mission to visit the historic space institutions of London, uh, we're in the council room today of the Royal Astronomical Society. You can probably hear from the acoustic because how vast this room is. Um, We're ahead of a large oak table, leather-topped, as you would expect, somewhere like this, and in a room lined floor-to-ceiling with books. I mean, it really is fantastic. But it's beautiful. It's I audio. Think... I mean, hopefully, you can. Hopefully, those books, the age of those books, are coming across. Yes, and, and more importantly, the fact that you've got one of those ladders to get to your top shelves, which remind me of the ones that Audrey Hepburn had in in Funny Face, I think, where they sort of roll acro- across. It's Maybe later they'll let era. us have a go. <laughs> yes. well, actually, actually, isn't there a secret doorway here? There Robert? is a secret doorway. If you look. Um, down there, it is locked, but up there is a secret passage up to the roof, which we did go up on mass one day when the when the sky was red over London with volcanic dust. We went up to have a look at this ethereal sight. Oh, fantastic! And better introduce our guest, actually, it's Dr. Robert Massey, who you've just heard, astronomer and deputy executive director of the Royal Astronomical Society, and beside me, Dr. Helen Cluse, who's the assistant editor for the Society's Journal. And this journal, the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society, fairly catchy title there, <laughs> has been going for 188 years. Yes, that's true. That's incredible. And then you've got the Society coming up with its 200th anniversary. So you've got this tradition behind you. Yeah. You've got astronomy that's one of the oldest sciences, Absolutely. effectively. yeah. Is it as exciting today as it oh, always has been? Oh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely, if not more exciting. It's probably the the oldest science ever since um, people could look up at the stars. They needed them to navigate, to create maps, and, um, yeah, to find their way around, to transverse the oceans. And uh, now it's even more exciting because we've got to the point where we can actually travel outside of Earth. It's absolutely amazing and the sort of thing that people dreamed of. Like people used to look up at Mars and imagine what would be there. And, and now we now go we there. Now we know, <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's absolutely fascinating and it's only going to get more and more exciting. Now, there's a scene in the second best space film of all time, The Right Stuff, where the silver-suited Mercury astronauts led by John Glenn get to see their space capsule for the first time and they are not impressed. It doesn't have a window or controls, they'll just be spam in a can. 
Well, eventually, with the press clamouring at the door, the engineers concede both a porthole and instruments, so the spacemen will get to pilot their spacecraft. Well, a similar process is going on right now in Houston, albeit in slow motion, as engineers and astronauts debate the interior design of the new Orion capsule. Designed to take humans to the Moon and Mars, the spacecraft's due for its first launch with a crew sometime in the early 2020s. Today, the astronaut taking the John Glenn role is a former submarine commander and veteran of three space shuttle missions, Steve Bowen. I asked him what Orion's like inside. It's really cramped. The four seats, the way they're positioned in the vehicle, sort of optimizes the volume in a sense. But uh, the two crew members not looking out the windows, you know, if we call them pilot and commander, the two people looking out the window. And then the below them or the other two, you know, you're looking at the... Uh, seat pan of the guy above you so and then your feet are almost at the bulkhead so it's really tight for four people in there and then once you get to orbit i don't know if all four people will be able to comfortably stretch out all all their appendages at the same time just to uh you'll be bumping into each other a lot but it's it's been done before i don't think it's uh that's prohibitive you just got to make sure you're used to tight spaces how are the astronauts that are training on it finding finding that the uh, the orion <laughs> um, we're learning a lot, you know, and we're discussing a lot of crew operations and we're evolving. We're not final on a lot of the uh, designs inside the cockpit in the sense that the exact locker configuration is close to what we think is we're going to have, but there's tweaks that we can make that will influence how we operate, uh, the seat configuration. Uh, once we get that aspect of it done, we'll have a better understanding of the uh, the living quarters that you have and how you're going to operate in, inside of it. Nobody's spent enough time in there to think that it's, it is the way it's going to be. We're always looking to improve it. Uh, somewhere down the road, you know, we'll get to a more final design, and that's, that will give us our settled chance that, okay, now we have this. How are we actually going to live in it for weeks on end? I don't know anybody who finds it too spacious, but uh, I haven't heard anybody really complain about uh, uh, not being able to live in those confines. One of the big criticisms of the space shuttle, apart from the early flights, was there was no escape system. I mean, there just couldn't be with the way it was configured and the flight deck was configured because you had the uh, two decks. How is that going to work with, with Orion? Is that something you've, you've already working on? Oh, yeah, absolutely. The abort system test, I think, is next year or is it the end of this year? Anyway, it's, it's coming up, AA2. That'll be really exciting to see. That's a similar abort system with a rocket on the top uh, to Apollo, and uh, there's a big test for that. As far as longer-term aborts, you know, we are looking at those. We are looking at how you would recover. Uh, should you have to abort early in a flight, late in a flight, how you'd get back? That's always part of the uh, mission design from the beginning to the end. Uh, if something goes wrong at any given point, how are we going to get back to, uh, at least back down to Earth? Maybe an uncomfortable place to land, but uh, that'll give you more of a fighting chance than not. Uh, and the other thing you're you're revisiting uh, again, <laughs> almost fifty years on, is, is splashdown uh, once more. And I guess the last American splashdown was with uh, Apollo Soyuz in the in the mid nineteen seventies. So again, you you having to go out to sea and and drop this in the in the in the water. Yeah, yes, and that's a a new process altogether because the capsule itself is significantly heavier than the Apollo capsule. And uh, there's no 
crane that's going to go or a helicopter that's going to go out and pick it up and, uh, you know, quickly take you uh, back to the deck of a, of a ship in the capsule. So the uh, process, the underway recovery testing that we've been doing, we just completed underway recovery test 6, URT 6, off of uh, coast of California last month. And it was uh, interesting to see. We have a, a test article that uh, they get out in the ocean, and uh, we try and uh, grab it and bring it back into the well deck of a LPD uh, ship, uh, USS Anchorage in this case. Uh, and at what point we take the crew out, how the vehicle... I was out there for the underway portion so that uh, I could better understand what the environment's going to be like on board the vehicle uh, once you do splash down, you know, it doesn't have a keel. It doesn't have its own propulsion. It's uh, it's going to basically be wallowing around, and uh, it's it'll be an interesting ride, uh, <laughs> even in slow sea state. So, you know, the question becomes, when do you get the crew out? Do you get them out early, uh, as soon as you can? And, you know, there's risks involved with getting them out while they're still floating around in the ocean. Which, which has always wait. happened, which has happened with with Mercury, happened with Gemini, happened with with Apollo. Exactly, yes. Or do you want to just leave them in the capsule and uh, bring them into the well deck where they can get out and on a on basically dry land? Uh, and there's, there's trades in there, and there's probably certain circumstances where either one or one of the other will be uh, preferred. Uh, you know, high sea states, you may want to bring them in. Low sea states, they may want to get out. You know, it'll, it'll be a, a call. Uh, but until we understand uh, that better, uh, we have to definitely work on both means of recovery. And after three weeks with three other people in that capsule, that's potentially one of the worst parts of the mission is wallowing in the ocean for a couple of well, hours. Well, you know, you, we, you focus on that first couple of missions, uh, three weeks or... Uh, I think, you know, a couple of these missions down the road, 42 days. But ultimately, this vehicle is going to be years, right? If we go to Mars in this vehicle, even if we have a habitat that takes us there and back, uh, the crew members will have spent years on orbit or years in space, not on orbit. So their physical condition is going to be very different uh, than any of the earlier programs. You know, we try and understand based on our knowledge, uh, you know, with ISS crew members, and uh, it's... It's, it'll be it'll be a difficult recovery uh, when we get to those longer missions, and you know that emphasizes how important the habitat you design that they'll will take them on these longer missions will be, and uh, what you need to do to get them home, and uh, how quickly you need to get them once they're on the on the planet. So, what was that like bobbing around in the ocean in this capsule? Were you on your own? Or did you have three other people with you as no, well? No, no, no. Actually, this capsule won't let us. They won't let us do that on this one. Right. Uh, we did do some testing this summer in Galveston Bay uh, with four crew members wallowing around a little bit inside of uh, Galveston Bay. But it's uh, uh, just from my boating experience and uh, having spent some time on ships without keels. Uh, it's. It can be very disconcerting if you're uh, um, not used to it. And uh, every time there's a, there's a perturbation in it, those, those jerking moments, uh, they can be pretty provocative, regardless of how much time you've actually spent at sea. So you're using very diplomatic language. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine it's horrible. Well, I, you know, it's, uh, I have had enough experience at sea to... See some of the saltiest crew members I've ever met in my life get violently ill, and when just the right circumstances, 
come up. It's not a case where you can say, I'll never get seasick, or I've never been seasick before. You, it's a real possibility. Wow. <laughs> so that's NASA astronaut Steve Bowen, a potential customer for the new Orion capsule. Um, just before we, we talk about that, I forgot to ask about toilets. And I can't believe I forgot to ask about toilets. I've since been in touch with NASA, and so I can confirm there will be a toilet in this capsule. We've heard how cramped this capsule is for four people. There will I'm also be sure a toilet in there. <laughs> there will also be a toilet there. So, I mean, essentially, you will be there. I mean, the minimum time they're talking about is 21 days for the first mission, this short three-week mission. So you essentially be there sharing a space much the size of a small bathroom with three work colleagues and a toilet. Or you could look at it this way. You're in a capsule. You're in a sort of space-faring port-a-loo. Well, that's essentially what it is. Yeah, well, you've got to have you've got to have something. You can't do the Apollo thing, and I think that's what comes across from that interview. I mean, I thought the stuff about Splashdown is fascinating, and and he was very well. He was very candid, I thought. Um, But it's much more, Robert, isn't it, than Apollo Plus Plus? This is a whole new design, although it superficially looks like things we've seen before in the sixties. This is very different. I think you're right, but I think it's also worth holding into the fact it is still a rocket system that astronauts in the 60s would have recognized we haven't gone through a technological step change in that sense so yes there have been improvements in materials and all those kind of things but they are still using fundamentally the same technology and i think the previous ESA director general used to make that point that you know thinking about different rocket systems is a good reason for you know a good thing there too but the 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 thing i was struck by was he wasn't really selling it as an experience (laughs) (laughs) he sat there talking about 21 exactly what you're describing 21 days in a small bathroom with your work companies and you do wonder you think wow imagine something a little bit bigger than that on a mission to mars and obviously we've seen those tests on psychology like mars 500 and so on which has back some aspects of that albeit not the zero gravity and the health the risks that you suffer there so it's it's pretty interesting to see and i, and I wish them well and i want to it would be really nice to see people walking on the moon again soonish and certainly in my lifetime seeing people go to mars i'm but not sure i'd want to do, travel in that. well imagine a two-year mission to Mars, a minimum probably of two years. If, you, if you're the most favourable conjunction, six months to get there, a year on the surface, uh, a year, uh, six months coming back, and in, in a vehicle that's not very big, you've got to be pretty tough. The idea that we're all going to do it and it's going to be like a commercial airliner, I think we're a long way from that. Because the way he described it, even at the beginning, as being really cramped and not actually being having full movement just with the four of you sat down, I was thinking, my goodness, I get back at, backache if a film is over two hours long in the cinema, that, I mean, a trip 21 you, days you will like be that. Wait, you will be weightless, though. And, and I think he's also oh. alluding to the, the habitation module, but that won't be on these early flights. So they're talking about, you know, a month potentially just in this, this capsule. The, the missions to Mars, you would have conceivably, they haven't built it yet, or haven't even come up with the design yet, um, but there will be a habitation module attached to that, a bit like a module from the space station. Nevertheless... Nevertheless, it's it, it's absolutely, you know, spaceflight is not a comfortable thing at the moment. We, we kind of imagine it. We look at science fiction ideas, you know, harking right back to, well, the earliest ideas and, you know, visually 2001 and so on. Luxury habitats in orbit were so far from that. And I think it's it's worth reflecting on that when we look at Elon Musk and so on and they talk about these ideas of colonising other worlds. Doing it for a lot of people just isn't really practical right now. And, let, you know, when you look at reasons like this, you're not going to get... You'll get many volunteers wanting to do it, but at the same time, I think you, the physical demands on people, it's going to be restricted for that reason alone to a small number. 
But then the way that um, Elon Musk and others will want to do it will not be probably like this because the Orion capsule does look like a large Apollo capsule and they're going back, like you said, to the sort of tried and tested technology. And perhaps the answer is the way that the uh, commercial companies are thinking is do something completely different because it just... His descriptions, and you're right, I'm amazed at how honest he was about it. It just sounded like the early days of space travel. It's It sounded like, the, you know, those tiny, you see a, a Mercury capsule on display anywhere, and you just go, good grief. But that is it's, a like sen- a, it's like, a you know, an, a chair surrounded by buttons. That's essentially his role, though. I mean, that's why I alluded to, to the right stuff, because that's what he, that's his role, mm. is to advocate on behalf of, of astronauts working with the engineers to get the best thing they can. What I was interested about, Sue, was that you were wins- you so want to go into space. Yeah. And to see your face when he was describing the the landing, the splashdown back into the sea. Well, you know me, I don't even like people hugging me if I don't know them. So to be that in that close proximity with, you know, I just, oh, yeah. And, then, no. and, then and the, the toilet thing and the ocean. I get, um, well, as you as you know, I, I slightly told a white lie about my motion sickness capabilities to go on the ESA zero G flight before Christmas. So, so, But yes, being, I do get terribly seasick. I'm okay on planes, but... That, that the thought of bobbing around. And also, the, it it didn't sound particularly... I mean, we were all, let's face it, and you as well, Helen, so don't, yeah, we, we were all pulling faces, yes. weren't we? <laughs> About waiting there, bobbing around, when you think we could <laughs> sink. The first thing I thought of was... Um, I wonder if they've thought about whether women would be better equipped because they're smaller. Do you remember recently there was a thing in um, in some caves where they had to find some uh, there was some really important remains in these caves and they put a um, call out for women who could do this hill people sorry who were below a certain height and um, they were very successful so I wonder if that would have any difference very 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 little but it might be worth <laughs> Well, that was the original considerations for the astronauts. They all had to be under five foot ten. They had to be specifically a certain height because otherwise they wouldn't fit in. And you're right, naturally, in in the early days, it favoured women because on the whole, women are less shorter and they weigh less, which means you need less fuel. So, you know, putting yourselves forward. I'm five foot tall and it's so much easier for me (laughs) when I'm on public transport (laughs) and so on. So, you know, maybe. Can I just briefly, Robert, talk about the science and what this is actually going to be doing? We've reset. We're now back at the moon with the deep space gateway in orbit around the moon, the space station, potentially going down to the surface of the moon, then on to Mars. How, how does that sit with, with what you feel about the, the science, if you like? And the astronomy. Yeah, I mean, I think Luke, there's... Well, there's astronomy a... is science, to be <laughs> yeah, fair. Yeah. yeah, come on. I like... <laughs> think about the venue here. <laughs> <laughs> I think of astronomical science, <laughs> shall we say. Yeah. Look, look, there's been an ongoing debate for, for many years on the value of sending people or robots to explore other worlds. And it's, it's not really settled, actually. I think you'll still find people arguing vehemently on both sides and also people who are compromising on that. And I think that's probably the position we as an organisation are in. My personal feeling is that I can see good arguments for sending people there on grounds of flexibility, particularly at the moment, unless we reach a far future point where we can design, uh, you know, cyborgs, uh, uh, 
androids that are capable of doing this kind of thing. And we're, we're a long way from that at the moment. So people do have that innate flexibility. It's very hard to get machines to have. You, it's, it's the thing about Harrison Schmidt going to the moon and, and spotting orange soil. And a robot really struggles to do that kind of thing. At the end of the day, you'll be sitting there in mission control, steering the camera, looking for things. Now, that's obviously far cheaper, and there's no risk to human life as a result. But the science that can be done is, is a, I guess it's perhaps more productive if you do get people there. Now, you might then argue, well, if you've got to spend 20 billion sending the people there, you can send, I don't know, 100 Mars robot missions for that. But I think it's fair to say that if you were able to set up a base and you have that flexibility, you can match up and manufacture things in situ. There are a lot of unanswered questions, both on the Moon and Mars, and reasons for going there, and things that probably people would be quicker to at least gather the evidence for and, and study it than that basis. So there are good scientific reasons for exploring both worlds, uh, and I think it's legitimate to send people to do that. But we shouldn't kid ourselves. A lot of this is about exploration, and it's about human expansion rather than necessarily always having a scientific reason underpinning it. I mean, that's been the case with the space station, for example, too. And do you think this will actually happen? This Orion project, I mean, it's been so delayed. In fact, the, the name Orion has kind of been reused and recycled back into this. Yeah, that, that's that's a fair point. Uh, I guess it probably will. They're still doing the development with it. There's still a budget for it. They have had test flights, and that's so it's further on than Constellation was. So, but, so perhaps we'll see it. I, it would be nice to... I did not just a reason for doing it, obviously, but it would be great from my personal perspective to see these things happening. You know, I was far too young to remember the Apollo missions, and uh, you know, I, I don't know whether I'll see anybody going back to the moon, but I, I, I would, I think I probably would expect to now, given the development on this, and also the fact that other nations are looking at it as well. If it isn't an American, it will be a Chinese astronaut there. Absolutely. Still to come, we'll be discussing Europe's latest plans to protect the world from killer asteroids. This is the Space Boffins podcast in partnership with The Naked Scientists. You can reach us on all the usual channels from Instagram to email and we'll post some pictures of our recording today here at the Royal Astronomical Society. We also did a video in the lift. That will become clear if you, <laughs> if you watch the video. It sounds, sounds worse when it's I say a, it out loud. Like, it's a bit like Jay-Z getting beaten up by Beyonce's sister. That was that before. Okay. And um, we'll also have some pictures of the inside of the Orion capsule, which uh, NASA has sent me. Um, also, you can like Sue's Facebook page for her forthcoming book, Wally Funk's Race for Space, uh, where you can find uh, pictures. And also there's a video there as well from one of uh, Wally's Recent TV appearances, which I mean, I mean, it's hugely entertaining. It's very entertaining. Yeah. She was in Hawaii, but uh, yeah, she, yeah. She she said to me, I spoke to her yesterday on the phone actually, and she went, "How was I? How was it? I just got off the plane, and I was like, woo!" But and you can sort of see that, but she's still utterly charming in it. <laughs> right. Well, if rogue nuclear nations, killer flu bugs, and melting polar ice caps aren't enough to keep you up at night. There's always an asteroid on a potential collision course with the Earth. Fortunately, another weapon in our planetary arsenal is almost complete in the form of a European ground-based telescope called FlyEye that will survey the sky with the aim of alerting the planet to risky objects heading our way. I spoke to Detlev Kozhny, the co-head of the Near-Earth Objects Division at the European Space Agency recently, and began by asking him how seriously we should be taking the likelihood of an asteroid smash. I think a good example is what happened in February 2013 in Chelyabinsk, or over Chelyabinsk, which is a city in Russia. 
And uh, there, uh, what happened was that a 20-meter asteroid entered the Earth's atmosphere and it blew up in something we call an airburst. The shockwave uh, damaged windows, it, it damaged large areas, and we had 1,500 people or something like that hurt. Now, what we're preparing for is something like this. If we know this coming, we can warn the people and they go away from the windows and nobody gets hurt. I remember seeing an yeah, awful yeah. lot of footage about mm-hmm. that um, on social media because nowadays so many people have security cameras or uh, mm. a dash cam on, in their car. But how um, likely is it to happen on, a, on a, a relatively regular basis, something like that happening? Well, we can always come up with statistics, and the the average number between two such events, purely statistically, is about 10 or several 10 years. So we'd expect something like that to happen several times per century. Now, since it's statistics, and since we don't know where these objects are, it could basically happen tomorrow again, or it could not happen for another 50 years. Now, did you predict that one, or did anybody on Earth predict that one? No, this one we did not for see coming and the reason was it was coming from the direction of the sun so basically if you wanted to spot it you'd need to look at in in daylight and that's something which with a ground-based telescope we cannot do you need a space-based telescope to see those we don't have them because they're too expensive so for these objects also in the future we will be blind so we're exposed effectively uh, we are exposed to, say, 30% because the other 70% we can see during the night because, they, you know, if they come randomly from all directions, you can always see a bit more than half of the night sky. So that's what we're preparing for. That's where we think it's worth investing money just to cover at least the 70%. And part of this preparation includes a new ground-based telescope. Right. So far, these asteroids are being discovered by American-funded surveys. Now, in Europe, since about 10 years, we have something called the Space Situational Awareness Program. And one of our big projects is to also uh, provide additional telescopes to these existing survey programs, as we call them. And we are currently constructing a telescope. It's being built in Italy which is a 1.2-meter telescope which will scan the complete night sky in only two nights, and that's fast. And when will it be online? Well, uh, we currently expect this telescope to be ready at the end of 2019. So, you know, we want to, to have it on the mountain. It will most likely go to Sicily. So it's an Italian-built telescope. The, one of the ideas is don't put it too far away. Uh, so you can fix things if they go wrong. And then this first telescope will probably end up in Italy, say, beginning of next year, but then it always takes some time to get everything ready and working. So my prediction is end of next year, and then hopefully the second telescope we'll be able to put in Chile under fantastic clear skies on the southern hemisphere where we don't have many telescopes looking. Now, in terms of the potential damage that an, an asteroid can do with a direct impact on Earth, What's the sort of, you, you mentioned 20 metres being the one in, in Russia, what's the sort of size range that's effectively the difference between cataclysmic, mm. life-threatening and perhaps, a, you know, a roof tile being knocked off? Yeah. Okay, when it comes to the sizes, let me think. I would say what we are typically assuming, anything smaller than 10 metres, we don't really worry about 
So again, statistically, uh, they don't do any damage. Something like Chelyabinsk was 20 meters, a bit smaller. Well, it hurt people. So that's definitely something we want to worry about. This will happen every 10 to 100 years, something like that. Between 10 and 20 meters, is, is yeah. not, that's not very big in order to detect it. Yeah, we, the smallest objects that have been detected are like five, six meters. So they're even smaller than, than what we worry about. The problem is you only see them when they're really close. And when they're really close, you have to look in the right direction. And that's why currently we don't see that many because the surveys, they look more deep. We call them deep, deep surveys. So they spent like a month to scan the whole sky and they see far away objects. But what they miss is the small ones which are close because they fly somewhere else where you don't look. With our new telescope, we have a very large field of view so we can scan the complete night sky much faster. We will not miss those objects. That's the special thing. And this is the one that's going to be called Fly Eye, is that right? It's called Fly Eye because, you know, nowadays if you want to build large uh, field of view, it's like a wide-angle lens. If you if you have a photographic camera, you have a zoom lens or a tele-lens and you have a, a wide-angle lens. Well, we need a wide-angle system, but still with a very large mirror. That's difficult to build. So the concept we came up with is like a fly's eye. That's why it's called fly eye telescope, where you basically have a number of lenses. that like a each, compound. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And each system looks into a slightly different area in the sky. So if you combine it all with one shot, you get a very large field of view. You get a wide angle view. So we've got the, the smaller asteroid sizes. What about those bigger ones that are going to cause problems? Right. The, the next step up is like 40, 50 meters in size. And there we have two examples. One is the Tunguska event, which was a bit over 100 years ago. That also happened in Russia. Simply it's, because it's, it's, a magnet, isn't it? no, it's a big country. It's more a statistical yeah. thing again because it has such a large uh, area. Surface area, yeah. Now, there, uh, that shockwave that it generated basically would have damaged a complete city. Like London would have been gone had it happened over London. Now, um, if it were made of iron, it would go through the atmosphere and make a big crater like the one we know from from Arizona, the meteor crater in Arizona. That was maybe a 50-meter object. It was iron, so it's very solid. It goes all the way through the atmosphere. It hits the ground. It makes a crater. So that's something which is uh, still only giving you local effects, what we call it regional effects. So you would need to evacuate, say, a, a country or something like that. Uh, if you go even bigger, say 100 meters or 150 meters in size, you can't even run away anymore. That's the size of object where we try to uh, actively deflect them. So what you do is you you like run a spacecraft into the asteroid and you push it away. You do that, you can only push it very, very small uh, amount. But if you do this early enough, then you're yes, safe. Right. It will avoid the Earth. Now, something like, a, say, a 150-meter object only occurs every few thousand years. But again, it's statistics, so we need to be prepared. It's like being bitten by a shark. I mean, that happens, I don't know, once in 10 million or something. Still, you put up signs saying, you know, be careful, there are sharks in there. And that's why we are preparing uh, for demonstrating such an asteroid deflection. So we are currently planning to, uh, we, are, we are studying a mission that could actually demonstrate that. And then at the next ESA Ministerial Council meeting, we will propose this mission to be actually built. 
it's all very Hollywood, isn't it? It's it's you know this is the thing. It sounds like Hollywood, but it's real. It's real. Yeah. Uh, and now. Asteroid impact threat is the only natural disaster that we can currently mitigate, that we can actually do something. We can predict them because these things fly on predictable orbits around the sun. So we can predict, say, uh, 10 years, 50 years, for some objects even 100 years into the future where they are. We can, you know, warn the people. We can just walk away, evacuate. Or if it's a larger object, we have the technical capabilities to deflect them. That's the cool thing about it. So it's a threat, but we can do something about it. Detlev Kozhny from the European Space Agency. He's quite amazing, isn't he, actually? He was very, very good, yes. I mean, and terrifying. we were all terrified <laughs> over that. Yeah. Although uh, I did love the way, uh, Helen, you, you sort of mumbled as we were doing that, this is why we should go to yes. Mars. <laughs> it's all connected, yeah. yeah. Now, we, we didn't really discuss where these objects are coming from and also whether it's, it, it's not just asteroids either that we should be worried about. We're mainly focused at the moment on looking at the asteroid belt and um, the belt of comets beyond the solar system. But these are all in a um, in the plane of the solar system. So we're only looking in, in certain directions at the moment. So that's why this is going to be so interesting, because if something comes in, like he was saying, from the, from the sun towards us or from from above the solar system down towards the Earth, then um, they'll be able to detect that. Yeah. So it's it's absolutely vital. And um you know, you hear them say, oh, the dinosaurs died because they didn't have a space program. Well, we need to be on this. And like a lot of a lot of things that we do in astronomy, you don't really know what the outcome is going to be until you do it. You don't really know, for example, with space travel, all the different technology that we've got from it. We didn't know we were going to do that at the time. But this is something <laughs> which we just need to do. It's not, you know, it, there's things about human exploration and, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful? But this, we're all going to die if we don't sort this out in the next, you know, few hundred years or whatever. So it's incredibly important and vital and this is really exciting. Would it, it be even more help if we had a telescope on the moon or would it make no difference whether the telescope was on the moon or on the Earth? I don't know, to be honest. I don't think it would make... A massive difference. What do you think, Robert? No, I, I don't think so. I mean, I think if it was in orbit, then it, it, you answer those questions about pointing it nearer to the direction of the sun than if it's on the ground when you've got obviously a bright daylight sky that you can't see anything with. Being on the moon, it gives you a stable platform, but it's mainly good for radio astronomy because if you're around the dark side of the moon, the far side of the moon, then you're, you're shielded from terrestrial transmissions. Optical astronomy, it's a nice platform, but it's less pressing than putting a telescope just in space. Now, Helen was saying just how important this is and I think we got that from that interview as well uh, what do policymakers think what do politicians think of this? it's been treated as a bit of a joke hasn't it yeah I think that's fair I mean there was a report on this uh, quite a long time ago now actually I think probably at least 12 13 years ago on and the UK set up this asteroid information center which then probably didn't give out that much information just ended up being I think a sort of table a website and, it was a website and <laughs> yeah. a table in the National Space Center and that's fine but actually there were very few concrete proposals beyond that and that tends to be the way things have worked. So there are people obviously trying to survey the problem, understand that. That's been going on for quite a long time, and Helen's right to point to the fact we need to increase the coverage. There isn't much going on in the Southern Hemisphere and so on. But in terms of tangible things to do, if we actually find one of these things on the way, uh, there are people with ideas about this, but there's no real plans in place to tackle it right now. And I think It seems very, very short-sighted, doesn't it? Particularly, I, I the... think uh, Tunguska should have been a wake-up call. I mean, the whole of London would have been obliterated if that had happened here and 
we were just lucky. It was a statistical thing of the fact that there's so much land mass and water mass that isn't populated, but it's just a matter of time. And um, that really should be a wake-up call for people. Even now, though, listening to him, him talk, it still felt like there are huge gaps, like this 30% gap, that the ones that are coming from from the sun. And then you saying, Helen, about from a, from a different plane, we're not doing enough, are no. we? No, we're not. And um, it's, it's, well, there's global warming as well as a similar yes, we're idea. All doomed. <laughs> yeah. we've, um, we've very much got to take, it's, it's human nature to not be scared of things that aren't immediate. And you think that won't happen in my lifetime. But we, as intelligent people, need to start thinking about this because um, it is going to affect us and it is just a matter of time. And can you imagine in 200 years when they look back and are like, why did they not sort this out? It would have been so easy. You, well, not easy, but it would have been doable. And, mm. you know, then a whole city is going to be obliterated, if not worse. I mean, that's an interesting thing, isn't it, for astronomy? Because when you think about, well, I do, when you think about why go into astronomy and become an astronomer, it's usually because people have specific areas. They think, oh, I'd be interested in dark matter or nebula or how planets formed yeah. or this. You, you don't think of it in terms of being preventing the obliteration of our planet do you? It's probably the most important thing we yeah. could ever do because um, obviously there are a lot of sciences that are, like medicine for example is incredibly important obviously but it's this is something that will affect every single person and not just person like with global warming it will affect our whole planet it's something we we need to be able to come together um, a little bit like um, when people came together to build CERN but in a in a different way, or, or with the global it's warming, probably more important than CERN because yeah, CERN, yeah, yeah, CERN wasn't going to save the planet. Yeah, but that, that's an example. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Brian. <laughs> yeah. That's an example of different countries being able to come together for a common scientific goal, like with the International Space Station as well, and and, and other projects. So we we need to be thinking about it in a more serious term. In the fact that no country on their own can do this, we need to work together. Which brings us back to policy, doesn't it? Yeah, and I think actually some of this is cheap. Monitoring and building small telescopes really isn't that expensive. The mitigation strategies, the cost of those, I suppose, depends on the object you're talking about. A small one, if you can attach a small rocket and nudge it, that's not hugely expensive if you're saving thousands of lives and potentially far more. Obviously, it gets more difficult with bigger objects, but you know, at least we understand how we could do this. I mean, there is, there is an issue about, say, saying things like long-period comets that we wouldn't necessarily have as much warning of because they come in from any direction, and you might only have uh, perhaps months, a few years. They would be more difficult. But asteroids, where we see them in orbits around the sun, where they're t- you, know, you probably could have tens, hundreds, even longer than that, years of warning, if, and be able to do something about it. And small nudges at the start would be enough to cause a little bit of a deflection that builds up over time. So it, it's quite a solvable problem in some ways. And do we know enough about asteroids now? Because I know that NASA... Actually, that mission was is still ongoing, or was it cancelled? With well, the there's the European Space Agency mission, which is on hold, as he said. It's coming. Yeah, yeah. It came up at the last um, Eastern Ministerial Council meeting. So these are these uh, biannual meetings mm. where they agreed funding for various things. So it didn't make the grade. Mm. The last meeting, um, much to the disappointment of the scientists. So it's up again. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that's only a trial mission. I admire the persistence. Yeah, exactly. But I, I can't recall off the top of my head now whether the NASA asteroid it's mission is It's part of a joint still... international mission, so... as far as I understand. So, again, it doesn't quite get there. It doesn't quite get yeah. the, the attention of, of the policymakers. It's, it's quite shocking, actually, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think we need to make people aware of this. 
I mean, the space situational awareness stuff he's doing, I mean, it also covers things like very immediate risks like space weather and so on, and also, you know, space debris and that kind of thing. So people are aware of the fact there's a technologically and economic impact to this, but I agree that the, the human protection side hasn't quite caught up with it yet. We, we can monitor things, but, we, you know, we can't do much more than that yet. Don't worry, so we could all be wiped out by gamma ray burst any second. <laughs> and then we wouldn't see that coming at all. So, you know. That's true, and there's nothing we could do. <laughs> and on that cheery note, <laughs> Helen Clouse and Robert Massey, thank you both very much for uh, joining us today at the Royal Astronomical Society and for hosting us. Um, you've got your 200th anniversary coming up. How's the planning yeah, coming along for that? It's really exciting. We've got about 12 projects coming up. Um, they're all around the country. Um, a lot of them are tying in art with astronomy and the cultural significance of astronomy in different regions. We've got one coming up in Cornwall. But yeah, they're going on over the uh, next couple of years. And yeah, it's going to be really exciting. And um, there'll be more details on that on our new website. And is it true that the Royal Astronomical Society started in a pub? It is true. <laughs> the, the, uh, a pub that suddenly no longer exists. But there is a thought about putting a blue plaque on the thing i think rather boring building that now occupies oh the site where the pub was the least you could do well, all, all the best ideas come out for a drink in the pub don't I, think, they? I think the, yeah. the merits of that are you know not to be uh <laughs> <laughs> underestimated exactly. yeah. robert and helen thank you both very much do look us up on your social media channel of choice and get in touch space boffins is a boffin media production in partnership with the naked scientists we're supported by the atrium space insurance consortium and since you asked the best space movie of course is apollo 13 we'll leave you with one of my favorite anniversaries and an historic space first the first of april 2013 now this is the moment where our friend ron garren and fellow astronaut mike fossum order pizza from the international space station it's ringing it's ringing okay oh hot damn well it's pepperoni right pepperoni and jalapenos all right Hey, how's it going? Hey, is this, are you the guys that guaranteed delivery within 30 minutes? Yeah, we're in the, we're in the Houston area. Well, well we, we have be. a Houston area code. We will be. Yeah, we'll yeah. Be, we'll be in the area. So, yeah, it's, uh, okay. Pull up world map. We could, you know. All right, address? Well, actually, we're on board the International Space Station. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, I'm serious. We, we really are. They can do it, right? Can you do, can you deliver it? Right, come on. Yeah, but you say it'll be free if if you can't do it in thirty minutes, and we are in the the Houston area code. Right, right. So what uh, what seems to be the problem? Yeah, yes, I would like to speak to your manager. Thank you, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yeah, hi, hi. Who am I speaking with? Hey, Steve. Hey, uh, uh, Ron Garen, call from the International Space Station. How you doing? Steve found a job, huh? Yeah. So. <laughs> Yeah, yes, that, that's, yep, the International Space Station. But, uh, you know, we were looking for some, some pizza up here. We were hoping you guys could uh, deliver. Yeah, well, we, we're in the Houston area code. That's right, and, uh, you know, according to your advertisements, 30 minutes. If you don't make it, it's free, right? All right, hey, cool. All right, pepperoni and, uh, and anchovies? No, 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 jalapenos. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, one large pizza with uh, pepperonis and uh, jalapenos. Yeah. Uh-huh. All right. How, how much is that? Dude, we don't have any money, do we? 